Lord, as we come to you, we confess that we're needy. We're physically weak. <clears throat> we're often confused. Our inclination is to stray from you. We feel uh, we don't know which way to go many times. And so we thank you that as we come into your presence, we come to one who knows the end from the beginning and does all things well. We also thank you that you are powerful to save and to sanctify. So please bless us as we look at your word. Uh, work in our hearts by your spirit. Convict us of our own sin, our uh, attempts to live life independently of you and draw us to yourself in new relationships of trust and obedience. We thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross to pay for every one of our sins. We love you for what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you get your copy? It came out last Friday, March 18th. The United Nations 10th Anniversary Report on Happiness. The World Happiness Report. It's 154 pages long. It has contributions from 150 countries. I'm surprised that you aren't up on this. Well, that report, let me just fill you in a little bit. That report is based on two assumptions. The first one is this. Happiness can be measured through an opinion survey. And the second one is we can identify key elements that determine well-being, that is happiness. And so this report is based on findings in six categories. They are... Gross domestic product, that is how countries are doing economically. Second one, social support. The third one, life expectancy. The fourth one, freedom to make life choices. The fifth one, generosity. And then the last one, perception of corruption. And who cares, right? Well, the United Nations care. The United Nations care because this information can help countries craft policies aimed at achieving happier societies. Which one is happiest? Do you know? Nobody here has read the report. Okay, I'm going to tell you. The happiest country in the world is Finland. And this is a 2021 report the most unhappy country in the world is Afghanistan. They probably weren't thinking about the recent developments in Ukraine. And where are we? Number 16. Not too bad. Now, how about the understatement of the morning? Opinions and convictions are wide-ranging in our world. So, as you might guess, not all countries are happy with the UN's World Happiness Report, Taiwan being one of them. 
And the reason Taiwan is not happy is because that report has included Taiwan as a province of China. Taiwan's Ministry of Affairs expressed dismay along these lines. This designation is mislabeling. Now, in point of fact, they say Taiwan has its own government and has never been governed by the Chinese Communist Party. And in a Twitter post launched to protest uh, this designation, Taiwan emphasized her sovereignty and the integrity of the nation. It emphasized that to say that Taiwan is a province of China is false, it's unacceptable, it is a blatant disregard for the country's vibrant democracy. And furthermore, Taiwan is a place where people enjoy democracy and human rights. Those are upheld and protected. And since the report is about happiness, the ministry also added that the United Nations should take more interest in Taiwan's happiness and said, now this is out of the president's office, the president of Taiwan said this, Taiwan would, much be, would be a much happier country on the happiness index if the United Nations would stop calling Taiwan a province of China. One other note though, missing from the UN report is any spiritual reference as that relates to happiness. And we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible has a lot to say about what's good for countries and what isn't. For example, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34 says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And that was not just written for Jewish people, it's written for any of the peoples of the world. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach, or it's a shameful thing for any people. And we can think of plenty of countries down through history which have not followed the path of righteousness and are viewed now as people that have engaged in shameful behavior. Well, the Lord's guiding history, and we're glad for that, aren't we? And uh, it's our need to keep in step with where he's taking things. And so today's topic is right on point. Praying a prayer fit for a king. Praying a prayer fit for a king, and it comes to us from Psalm 72. So if you have a Bible and can turn to that section. Psalm 72, we're going to look at the entire passage You can kind of think about this psalm in three, as, as having three categories. There's a prayer at the beginning, and then there's praise at the end, and in between are pleas. So we're going to look at the prayer, the pleas, and the praise. And then after we've done that, we'll think to ourselves about how we might be able to make this psalm applicable to the week that's before us. 
Now, just a couple overview comments. Uh, Psalm, uh, the book of Psalms, the entire book of Psalms, is divided into five subsections, which are called books. So within the big book, there are five little books. And you'll notice reference to that idea in, at the end of verse 20. See it? It says, um, this is uh, the prayer of the son of David, and now those have ended. So Psalm 72 is the end of book two, in other words. Psalm 72 is also what's called one of the royal psalms. Why royal? Because it's about the king. And there are nine other royal psalms in the book of Psalms, ten in, ten in total. And this psalm is both a prayer and a song. That's the reason it's in the book of Psalms. People sang this. All right, so what's the author doing here? Let's look at the first couple verses. Oh, of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Now, let's just say from the outset, things are a little confusing. So let's try to identify the confusion and then move on quickly from it. The first thing is, what does of Solomon mean? Is that to say this psalm was written by Solomon? Is it to say it's about Solomon? We don't know. And then we read, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. And that raises this question. How many people are in view? Is there a king and his son? Are there two people here or just one? Uh, maybe this is about the son of the king. Uh, perhaps he's inherited the throne from his father. Or could this mean that the son and the king are ruling together? There's kind of a dynasty. We don't know. Whatever the answers to those questions, the author gets us off on the single theme of prayer. He says, give the king. It's an imperative form of the verb. Give the king your justice and righteousness. Oh God. And it's a cry from the heart. Interestingly, we find this word righteousness here in the first verse. It's also in the second verse and, and in the third verse. And the point, I think we can just put the brakes on for a moment and say to ourselves, good government expresses God's righteousness. Good government expresses God's righteousness. Want to know what the Lord thinks about how politicians ought to conduct themselves? Study Psalm 72. It'll help you. And we probably should remind ourselves regularly, good government expresses God's righteousness. Now, just let your eyes flow down through the rest of the psalm. I just want to pick out repeated words. Look for the two words, may he. May he. You'll see it again and again. May he, may he, may he, may he. It's in verses 2, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 16, and 17, at least. There may be some that I've missed. 
Now, these aren't imperatives. They're more a plea. The writer is saying, Lord, would you please make it the case that? And so this psalm is really a cry for help. Oh, God, we're needy. Please come and rescue us. And rescue us by giving us a king that is righteous and just. But, but let's just pause here. What is prayer anyway? Well, someone has defined it this way. Prayer is asking God to give us the things he's already promised. I think that's a good definition. I mean, for example, you wouldn't really think it was a, a proper prayer to ask the Lord to help you rob the 7-Eleven, would you? Would it give me wisdom to know just how to hold up the cashier and get the money and get out of it? No. Prayer is asking God to give us the things that he's already promised. And so the question then pops up is this one. Has God promised good government? That takes us back to the life of our very good friend, King David. Remember what happened back in 2 Samuel chapter 7? David wants to build God a house. And he tells Nathan. And God comes back and replies to David. He says, so you want to build me a house? Well, let me tell you what I have in mind. And then we read in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 and following, the, this amazing statement. David, the Lord will make you a house. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Yeah, the Lord has made a promise of good government. It's right there, black and white, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the author in Psalm 72 rightly begins by asking God to give him and give the nation what he's promised. All right, now let's go to the end of the psalm. Please look with me at verses 18 and 19. Having said, Lord, give us the king who's just and righteous, now we read these words. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. You can think about verses 1 and 2 and verses um, 18 and 19 as like bookends on the whole psalm. All right, you don't like that analogy? Think about it as the bun on a hamburger. You got the top and the bottom, and in between is the, okay, we're going to get to the in-between part, but verses 1 and 2 are one side, and then 18 and 19 are another, and what's the difference between the two? Well, at the end of the psalm, the writer is now celebrating what he's asked God to provide. Uh, please give the king justice and righteousness. Lord, aren't you good? Blessed be his glorious name forever and ever. And so we want to just pause here and ask the question about your praying. 
The psalmist's prayers are driven by God's promises. To what extent are your prayers driven by God's promises? If you're like me, you can fall off the wagon on either side. Uh, on the one hand, eh, really, there's not much praying, because, much point in praying, because the Lord really isn't interested in these details in my life. Or, I just want what I want. Um, I need, I need, I need. Uh, and I'm not thinking about praying God's promises back to him. And then a related question this far. To what extent do your prayers express the confidence of this psalm? This confidence in God's promises. Well, the joy, the exuberance that we find in 18 and 19 uh, really are because there's a bright future that's being cast before us. God has said it. He must accomplish it so I can bank on it. And I can look to the future with enthusiasm and optimism, not because I have somehow miraculously aligned uh, God's will to my will, but rather because I'm trusting in the fulfillment of God's word as he's expressed it to me. So if you're like me, personal and global events can get pushed through the grid of what I, at the moment, based on my very limited experience, think would be best. Um, or what I think, based on my experience and the experience of others, I think is possible. And so it's often the case that I don't come away from my prayer time with much confidence in what the Lord is doing. And I think it can be because I'm not basing my prayers on God's providence, his promises on the one hand. It can also be because I am not really submitted to his will. So this psalm is all about praying for good government. And the rest of the psalm fleshes that out. So now what I want us to do is to actually look at the hamburger. Uh, verses uh, 2 through 17. And we'll begin in verses 2 to 7. They are concerned with uh, three very important ideas. Verse 2, righteousness, but with a focus on, did you notice it? Justice for the poor. Now, Again and again in the Bible, the Lord said to his people, I want you to be concerned about those that are less fortunate around you. He tells them they have an eye for compassion for those that are in need. Now this pops up, see it in verse 4? May he, that is the king, defend the cause of the poor and give deliverance to the needy and crush the oppressor. And then look at verses 3, 6, and 7. We get similar kind of idea uh, 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 about what we want to see in good government. It's not so much compassion and justice for the poor, but it's rather prosperity. See it? It's the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, 
And that means peace, success, welfare, deliverance, everything as it ought to be. I don't know about you, but on occasion, I've gone out uh, and walked through uh, a yard that has just been mowed and it's still wet because the rain has fallen on it. Or maybe I'm walking past a farmer's hay field. He's just cut it and it's rained on it. And there is this wonderful smell that meets my nostrils. I love it. And that's the picture that's here. That helps us understand what good government is like. It's refreshing. And then one more, look at the end of verse 7. The focus here is not on compassion, it's not on prosperity, it's rather on longevity. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. So let's try to summarize God's idea of good government. Godly government is marked by righteousness. That's the umbrella concept. And it expresses itself through those in positions of authority pleading the cause of the poor. Enduring and prosperity for all. Now imagine that you were in ancient Israel. And you hear these words, this prayer for the king. Wouldn't this vision excite you? Wow, we're looking for this kind of future. Good government, godly government, just government, compassionate government, government that continues, government in which people flourish. And you say to yourself, I have a personal stake in this. It's to my advantage to do whatever I can to help to contribute to this kind of rule in society. Well, that's not all. So now let's go down and look at verses 8 through 16. This may he, may he, may he business continues in these verses. Caring for the poor, pursuing justice for the needy, prosperity for all, down through all time. And now look at verse 12. We'll see these themes pop up again. The king delivers the needy, the poor, and him who has no helper. Verses 13 and 14. The king has pity on the weak and needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. Then verse 16. May there be abundance of grain. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Verse 17. May the king's name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. Get the similarity between what's here and what we heard earlier? You should, because they're very similar concepts. But there's an added dimension here. There's a new thing that we haven't bumped into yet. Now see if you can get the drift of it. Verse 8. May the king have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, may desert tribes bow down and his enemies lick the dust. Verse 10, kings of Tarshish 
and the coastland, render him tribute. Kings of Sheba and bring him and Zeba, bring him gifts. Verse 11, may all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. Verse 15, may the gold of Sheba be given him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. Verse 17, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. What's the new element here? Do you get it? The thing that we don't find up to this point in the psalm, the thing that we don't find at the beginning, is this, emphasis, this worldwide emphasis. Globalism, if you will. It's a global interest. It's not enough for Israel to have her own king and everything to be great within the boundary, geographical geographical boundaries of Israel. That's not enough. The Lord has a vision for something much greater than that. What's good for Israel, you see, is good for the whole world. Everybody needs good government. Everybody needs a righteous king. Everybody needs a king who is interested in the, pu in the poor, ensures justice for those who cannot speak for themselves, who governs to promote prosperity, who's interested in the extension of righteousness for all times and in all places, who receives homage and tribute from all peoples, regardless of ethnicity, language, or culture. What a vision. Isn't that amazing? We get included in it with all of our diversity. Or let me cast it the other way. Good government, godly government, is not impulsive or unpredictable. It is not aloof from the needs of people around. It is not self-consumed. It is not self-protective. It is not arbitrary in its use of power. Good government flows out of the personality of a righteous ruler because a righteous ruler lives in conformity to the will of God. What an answer to this prayer. God, give the king your justice and your righteousness. And let's just say it to ourselves again. This is a, this is a royal psalm. This is about kings. Did David realize this vision in his lifetime? No way. We know a lot about his failures, one after another. How about Solomon? Hardly. What did he have, 700 wives and, concubine, and 300 concubines? No way for Solomon. How about Solomon's descendants? Uh-uh, we know that after Solomon, the kingdom was split in half. There's only one king that could be like this king. And that king's name is Jesus. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. To him, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And this is precisely the vision that the rest of the Bible gives us about his rule and his reign. It is for his coming and the glory of his kingdom that we long. And it is his appearing that we love. And it is his righteous reign for which we are taught to pray here in Psalm 72. But let's not forget the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we do see this vision realized in part now in our world. We want to say in part and underline that, but where do we see this vision for a righteous king realized in our world? In the church. Where are there people from multiplicity of backgrounds who gladly bow and do homage before the Savior? In the church. That's what makes the church just the salt of society. There is a place, not perfect, we're not perfect, but we're moving in the right direction because the Holy Spirit is at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure to conform us to the image of Christ. And I'm so thankful, let me just say this, I'm so thankful that we're connected to the church in Ukraine. And as I mentioned earlier, with your generosity to help the suffering saints there. We're part of a global community where the rule and reign of Christ is in evidence more and more. Now let me ask this question. Is it enough to identify how this points us to Jesus? I don't think so. It does point us to Jesus, no question. In a few moments, we're going to sing the song, Jesus shall reign, where ere the sun doth his successive journeys run. And it just picks up on the theme of Psalm 72. Besides seeing Jesus, we want to ask, how does the Lord want this psalm to move us to serve him better? And we have to start with what the text says and move to the theology of the text before we can make valid application. Is not this psalm a call to pray for righteous government? Seems like that's on the face of it. And so how might you, in the week that's ahead, more faithfully be about your father's business. So let me suggest one small thing you could do. You can take a sticky note and you can put it on the mirror in the bathroom or on the refrigerator or wherever you're going to bump into it and you could write on that sticky note, pray for the president. Pray for the leaders of the nations of the world. They certainly need it. And the Lord has ordained that his gospel is advanced as his people pray. That's the first thing you can do. What's another thing? Well, for righteous government to be a worldwide reality, people have to know the Lord. You can't expect unbelievers to act like believers. 
And so Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 10. He says, how shall they call on him of whom they haven't heard? How shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they be sent? And so pray in keeping with Luke 10 for more Christian workers to go to places in the world where there is no gospel witness right now. Jesus says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest field. And as you're praying, you might pray for yourself on that point. Lord, is there anything you want me to do to contribute to the movement of the gospel around the world? And then one more point of application. You have the privilege of voting. Not everybody in our world can vote for leaders, but you have the privilege of voting. So study the character of the candidates and ask yourself the question as you're doing some background work, does this person seem to have a sense of justice? Is this person somebody who will govern with righteousness? And ask the Lord to guide you to people who will reflect his character in their decision-making. And then check that box. Now, one of the other things that I think this psalm does is it exposes our propensity to be preoccupied with ourselves. And so I want to talk about that just a little bit. And I also want to say that as we talk about it, there's hope for you to be more like Jesus. So let me give you an example. Grandma Maggle was not my grandmother, but like many people who knew her, I called her Grandma Maggle. I had a warm affection for her, and she seemed like she had a warm affection for me. Maybe it was put on, but that's the way it seemed. One of her biological granddaughters asked if Grandma Maggle would help fund a trip she wanted to make to Dallas. There was a Christian gathering, and as it turned out, there were 80,000 high school and college students who gathered to um, receive training in how to better be faithful followers of Christ and how to pass on the gospel to unbelievers. Well, Grandma Maggle was delighted to help. And so besides funding part of that trip, the Lord used that interaction so that Grandma Maggle, who was in her 80s, was saved. She wanted to know, what's this gathering of these students? It was a perfect time to talk about the gospel. She heard the gospel. She comes to faith. Now, she had been raised in what I want to call a nominal Presbyterian church. There are such things as those. Uh, the goal of that church was try to be good, be your best, you know, out of your own resources. And there was not a focus on you need Jesus to be your savior. You need to repent of your sins. You need to believe the gospel and live a life that's in keeping with what the Lord has said out of the resources that he provides. She didn't hear any of that because it wasn't taught. And once she told me, uh, she was like a spiritual sponge. And so one time we were talking, 
And she was very insightful on certain things. And she said, well, this is how we learned to pray in the Presbyterian Church. Now, it's something of a caricature, but you'll get the essence of it. She said, we were learned to pray like this. Uh, God bless me and my wife. Our son John and his wife. Us four, no more, amen. (laughs) No kidding, she did say that. That's hardly a prayer fit for a king, wouldn't you say? And if you will, you can turn from your self-preoccupation to bigger things, like the advance of God's kingdom in the world. And you can pray with confidence, regardless of the problems in Ukraine and Syria and China and North Korea and Myanmar. You can pray with confidence what this psalmist prayed. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to bless it to us. We pray that you'd help us to be more faithful in praying prayers that are in keeping with your will instead of trying to manipulate you to live life our way. And we do ask that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done in earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.